The Grow Kinder podcast features conversations with thought leaders in education, business, tech, and the arts, who all share one thing in common, a dedication to growing kinder in their work and lives, and helping others do the same. Brought to you by Committee for Children. Today we talk with Peter DeWitt, Education Week's blogger for Finding Common Ground. Peter is a former teacher and principal who runs competency-based workshops. He provides keynotes nationally and internationally, focusing on collaborative leadership, fostering inclusive school climates, and connected learning. Peter talks with us about how important it is for children to have a social-emotional connection to their education and how mindfulness has had a significant impact on his life and made him a better listener. Welcome, Peter DeWitt, who we are excited to have on the podcast today. Peter, I'm Andrea Lovenhill, and my co-host Mia will introduce herself. Hi, Peter. I'm Mia Dosis. I'm the VP of Innovation at Committee for Children. It's yes. really a pleasure to have you on the line with us today. Thank you for having me on. And just to give our listeners a little background, you are a former elementary teacher and a principal. Currently, you run competency-based workshops and provide keynotes nationally and internationally on collaborative leadership. You also have a popular education blog on EdWeek. So tell us a little more about your blog and what got you into education. Geez, I got into education many years ago because I had been working at an after-school program for kids and just really loved the whole experience and decided to get into elementary education, which was definitely the best decision I ever made. From there, I you know I spent 11 years in some high-poverty city schools in the New York area and then uh, moved into being a school principal for eight years in a rural suburban school district and left uh, five years ago to be a full-time consultant and author. So it sounds to, from reading a little bit about you and from reading some of your blog posts, that you have a particular interest in social-emotional learning, as we do here, obviously. And I'm just curious about sort of how you've come to that interest and what your experiences are with social-emotional learning. It's definitely been an area of interest for me for a long time. I mean, I'm a I'm a guy that, you know, I lost I lost my dad when I was young. I was retained in elementary school and I barely graduated from high school. So I, I think that just from a very young age, I was sort of on the outside looking in when it came to how I felt about school. When I realized after dropping out of a couple of community colleges and finding success is that, uh, you know, there were lots of kids like me. And I wanted to find a way to engage them. You know, what I've learned over the years, um, especially when I'm doing my own research and those kind of things, is that kids need a social, emotional, they need that emotional connection to the school community. And, you know, I think when it's, when you're an elementary school teacher, it's sort of a no brainer. It's something that, I mean, you want the kids to have an emotional connection to the school because they're so young. As time went on, I, I did a master's degree in educational psychology, and I, I think I learned more about why that's important. And then when I started to do my doctoral work back in around 2008, 2009, I started specifically looking at marginalized populations. So I did my doctoral research on how well school administrators safeguard LGBT students. And I, I didn't think it was going to be a controversial issue at the time, but I, I learned pretty quickly that it was a controversial issue. And it, 10 years later, it still seems to be. So I think that... Um, what I like to explore in my blog, I've been writing since 2011, 
I like to explore those social emotional issues because I think that knowing that kids need an emotional connection to the school community, I think we need to be able to look at that in a variety of ways. And we also know over the past few years, especially with the increase in research around trauma and mental health issues of students, we know that social emotional connection is even more important now than maybe ever before. Thanks. We also talk a lot here about how those social emotional skills are important, not only in school, but in life. And I'm curious how you've taken your perspectives around teaching and learning and especially some of these issues that you don't expect to be contentious, but in the end do end up somewhat difficult to discuss in the school space. How do you approach your work in finding content and writing content for Finding Common Ground, your blog, with that social emotional lens and and sort of trying to you know navigate these issues that seem contentious? One of the things that I learned fairly early on, both as a teacher and also as a principal, is that we don't we don't need an add-on, right? We're, we're so busy with so many things on our plate as teachers and leaders that the last thing I want to do is sort of come in and add more to the plate. So what I've always said is that social-emotional learning is actually the plate that everything else is on. So I try to make it as natural as possible. Even when I'm talking about LGBT issues, which to some people is very controversial, I always look at it from the standpoint of if our job as educators, if our job as leaders, to make sure that our students, all of our students are successful, then we need to make sure that we're going about it from many different directions. And the academic piece is something we always talk about. It's always a focus to rigor and all those words that we use and in, in for the academic side. But from the social-emotional learning side, I think we have to look at it from a variety of issues, from trauma to mental health. Why are our students experiencing those? So I try to make it natural to say, listen, it's it's not rocket science to be able to do this. When I was doing my doctoral research and also when I'm, you know, when I'm speaking, I was actually in Australia last week and I talk about enabling conditions and they're fairly easy to use. It's it's codes of conduct, school board policies to make sure that we focus on social emotional learning and academic learning, but it's also about Simple things like the images that we have hanging up in the hallway, are they representative of all the students that we've got in our school, and is it a positive representation? Same things with our books and novels. Uh, when I was growing up, there were very few books from the standpoint of a one-parent household. So I always felt like my life was very odd compared to everybody else whose you know parents were together or their 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 parents were both alive. And I think that through books and novels we can naturally bring in these social emotional topics because representation matters. And especially when we're talking about curriculum as well. If I'm whether I'm in the United States talking about the LGBT issues or even our our indigenous populations, you know, the same goes for when I'm in the UK or when I'm in, in Australia. It's, are we making sure that those things that we're using to teach our students are just representative of those very students in the room? Because if they're not, that also sends a hidden curriculum, which is you're not represented in the books, novels, curriculum. So therefore, you're not really welcome in our school as much as everybody else around you might be. And if we're going to say things like, you know, schools always use this motto, all means all, the reality is that's not at all what's happening in, in places. There are students that do not feel welcome in the school. And I think by incorporating those things naturally, like, you know, policies and codes of conduct and images and, 
also books, novels, curriculum, those kind of things, and making sure they're representative of all of our students and bringing that into the conversation. I think that's a really great place to be able to start. What you're talking about reminds me of a couple of things that have gone on here this week at Committee for Children in our work. We had a great discussion around children's literature and what is available in the classroom and what teachers bring in and feel comfortable going through, and then also how they can support that representation, especially in talking to parents and families that may not you know, share the same view as the teacher around the importance of representation in the classroom. And uh, also, it makes me think of something I saw online that Edutopia posted. It was a in honor of Pride Month and LGBT reading list for teachers to think about mm-hmm. that representation uh, of those various identities within their classroom. And it caused such uh, <laughs> a, a, a divisive reaction. And in fact, Edutopia had to delete comments from users, which I don't see very often in, on their posts. And so I, I wonder how you would help leadership and teachers navigate those conversations. And there's such an opportunity in sort of generating this perspective taking. I, I think that your the one of the purposes of your blog is to find that common ground. You said let's have real conversation and collaboration around topics that influence children in their education. How do you approach topics that do you know divide families from the school or or where teachers may feel not equipped to really discuss various identities with their classes or with or with the families that they're supporting that's a very big question and there are there are a variety of ways I go about it you know many times I write the blog because I mean over the years it it actually helps me process out information I think for me it's always about making it a natural part of the conversation so no matter where I am, and there are places that I have to speak where there are anti-LGBT laws, and yet I'm walking into these states, I'm walking into these school districts knowing that they do not include all students. And it really goes back to not just the enabling conditions, but it goes back to the heart of what we're supposed to be doing as a as a school community, especially when we're talking about a public school system. I mean, there were times that I got pushback from a few parents when there were certain books, children's books, age appropriate that were used in the classroom. And I talked about the fact that, you know, as a public school system, we're here to make sure that all students feel comfortable and that we have parents who are in the LGBT community. You know, so it's in some ways, I take a very strong stance when I have to defend why I'm going down that road. In other ways, it's really about trying to understand what the reality, like, why wouldn't you want to include all of your students? And I think you said it best. You were talking about that there are teachers that don't feel comfortable. And what I look at is the research around self-efficacy. Self-efficacy has been around for decades. Albert Bandera from Stanford in the 1970s started to talk about it. And it was really self-efficacy is about the confidence we have in our own actions and our own abilities. And then these great researchers, Shannon Moran and and Garis out of uh, the College of William and Mary, started to look in the mid-2000s at self-efficacy and talked about the fact that self-efficacy is very context-specific, meaning that we all, all of us, have areas where we feel very confident to speak and other areas where we don't feel confident. So there are teachers that feel very confident with teacher-student relationships, but they don't feel as confident 
using different instructional strategies in the classroom. So sometimes, to your question, what I look at is it's not that people don't want to be able to address these issues. It's that they really just don't know how. And that's where I try to come in with some natural perspective to be able to say, not everybody feels confident being able to talk about these issues. So what are different ways that we can incorporate them in a way that it's okay to talk about them? And sometimes it's about letting people off the hook who think that they have to say the right things. You know, when it comes to the acronym, Sometimes you'll hear LGBT, and I use that only because that's what the acronym was for my doctoral work and most of the research that I did. Other times, people will say LGBTQ. It's really about sort of getting that common language and common understanding around what acronym would be appropriate to use, and let's all use the same acronym. And there are teachers that don't feel comfortable because they're worried they're going to say the wrong thing. And sometimes it's students who step up and say, I'm not worried about you saying the wrong thing because I'd like to be able to talk to you about that if that's possible. And I think that there can be a lot of strength in that. I think that it's always, for me, it's about, and every case is a little bit different. And that's why I said your question is so big, because sometimes I will walk into a situation where it's easier to sort of talk about those enabling conditions that I brought up before. Like, what about images? Do you have safe space stickers? Or it's not even always about the LGBT community. Sometimes it's about our indigenous populations. You know, when I was growing up, Native Americans were not represented very, they were represented in history books, but it was not a positive representation. So it's talking about marginalized populations. So sometimes it's very easy to say, let's talk about some books that might be necessary. Other times, it's a very different conversation. I remember I was in the Midwest one time where my state's been adopted, and I was talking about marginalized populations, and I had an assistant principal who had said, he asked me, what does that mean? And I said, well, it's like you're LGBT students. And he said, well, we don't have any of those. And he was a high school assistant principal. And I said, that's, I'm not good with math, but that's statistically impossible. You do have students that are in the LGBT community. They just don't feel comfortable coming out. So I really feel like sometimes for me, it's about what opening do I have in front of me and what opening can I take? And if it's somebody that seems like they can take a lot of information, then I might come in a little bit stronger. If it's somebody that seems interested, but they're a little bit insecure and I worry about that self-efficacy piece, then I might come in and say, how about thinking about a couple of these things to be able to do? If it's somebody who is flat out in denial and they're saying that's not something that they're going to be able to address within the school, then I just simply say to them, then you you really don't care about all of your students. And that whole motto of all means all really isn't true for your school. And because I think that leadership for me, and, and maybe this is the area where I always get very passionate because I've dealt with challenges. I've dealt with pushback. I've dealt with from whether I was a, a principal to writing the blog to running workshops and being on the road 47 weeks a year. There are times that I will say things that there are there are people in the audience that do not like them. And I would rather be able to challenge each other's thinking and have those conversations because I feel like leadership is not about what you say behind closed doors to your friends and not say anything out in the open. Leadership is about sometimes moving forward when maybe you're alone doing it because it's just your moral purpose tells you that this is the way you're supposed to be going. So I think it's, for me, it's a case by case basis. And I differentiate my instruction with the people I work with, depending on how much information that I think they can take. Because if I'm going to just make them angry, then that's really not going to do anything. 
But if we're going to talk and sort of see each other's, it come to a common understanding of about where each other is, then it's going to be easier for me to say, so here's one thing you might want to think about trying to do. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, actually, I have a follow-up question to that then. <laughs> you know, it you, it sounds like you work with educators all over the country and in fact, all over the world. And I know it's been my experience, and I'm curious if it's your experience that there seem to be many different understandings of social emotional competency, social emotional learning, social emotional development. And I'm curious about just kind of based on what you were just talking about, about how when you go to a new place and try to assess what's going on there, what kind of the, the, the vibe is there, and kind of tailor your workshops to that. Do you find that you're having to do a lot of clarifying around social emotional learning? Or do you find that people have a lot of confusion around it? Or what is sort of your sense about kind of a common understanding of social emotional learning? Yeah, I think it it depends. And I, you know, I learned those two words a long time ago and maybe they're not the the greatest words, but it does it depends on the audience. There are times that I think that they truly value the idea of social emotional learning. They're just not quite sure where they're supposed to fit it into their day because they have so many responsibilities and because, you know, we can't possibly take time for social emotional learning because we have so much academic learning to do because we have high stakes testing coming. Other times, there are groups, you know, I've got this friend, uh, Russ Qualia, and Russ does a, a great deal of work over the past few decades where student voice is concerned. Other times, when I'm working with a school district, I might bring in his work because they're already doing some really great things around social-emotional learning, but they can go deeper where student voice is concerned. Like the students can have more of a voice in the process, so they can go a little bit deeper. And for me, it also really depends on the leader. And that's why, I mean, I uh, predominantly, most of my work is with school leaders. And the deal there is if a school leader is going to be the one, not that they have to be confident in all things social emotional learning, but if they at least are on board with it, then it makes it easier for teachers to be on board because they know that the leader values it and the teacher feels like they can take steps to be able to do it. If a leader is saying, we don't have time for even like, you know, you've heard these horror stories about schools that like at the elementary level, they take away recess, which I think is, you know, the worst thing that you can do to an elementary school student. It's pretty clear there that the leader doesn't value social emotional learning because at the basic need, we, our students need a brain break, right? But other times, you know, you might have a leader that that is going to be on board with social emotional learning and they value it. So the teachers are going to take steps to be able to do that. So when I'm working with leaders, the SEL part is definitely something that always comes up, especially when I, you know, part of the work I do is always talking about this thing, assessment capable learners, because I work with, I do a lot of work with John Hattie, who's at the University of Melbourne in Australia. And John has the largest database of educational research, and he synthesizes meta-analysis. So he talks about this assessment-capable learners. And people many times think, oh, that just means that you want kids to be good on tests. And that's not at all what it means. It actually means that students know where they are in the learning process. They know how they got there, and they know where they're going to next. And part of that is to naturally bring in the social-emotional side. Because like I said earlier, when we're thinking about students that we want to be successful, there are two parts there. There's the academic side, 
where we can talk about teaching strategies and we can talk about, you know, student engagement, that kind of thing. But on the other side, we have social emotional learning, which also impacts the kind of teaching strategies we might use. And it also impacts student engagement. So I think that those pieces are pretty easy sort of to bring into every conversation that I ever have. And you mentioned earlier that there's been some backlash when you have stated very strongly that social emotional learning belongs in schools or should be part of education. I'm curious what kind of specifics you have around the role you think that schools and educators have in promoting social emotional competencies and, you know, in the in sort of looking at the response you received, what seems to be the factor that's really leading a lot of people down the other road of resisting it or feeling like there's not a place for it in schools yeah. other than the time constraint? Yeah, I was going to say time is always going to be the biggest factor. I remember after I, I wrote a blog about why social emotional learning is necessary in our schools. And I had a principal from Florida. She tweeted to me, and I'll never forget it because it was about a year ago. And she tweeted to me and said, schools can't do it all, which I never said in the blog, but schools can't do it all. What about parent accountability? And I thought, you know what? That's a really interesting a really interesting comment. And I ended up writing a blog about that as well. I get some of my greatest blogs from the people I make angry. But she, I said, what about parent accountability? That's an interesting one. Let's, let's actually look at that because we want parent accountability when we think that the parents don't show up or that they're not involved as much. But what about that parent that calls us too much or shows up to school too many times? Then we call them a helicopter parent, right? So we want parent accountability until we actually get it. And what that really means is we want parent accountability just as long as it suits us really well. So the parent accountability piece is definitely one of those that come out. As far as your question about what role do the schools take? I think that the role the role that the school takes needs to naturally fit into where they are in the process. And that's going to look different for each, each school. I feel like if we have a high percentage of students in our school who have experienced trauma or mental health issues, then we're probably going to have an extra layer of social emotional learning that's taking place within that within that school because we know that that's going to be a necessary component. We know that you know, even when we're talking about teaching strategies, we know that sometimes the strategy we might use when we're teaching a student who's been experiencing trauma, that that might, that very teaching strategy might trigger the trauma. In other schools, I think it naturally happens. You know, we've got teachers that I remember when I was a, when I was a school principal, there was something, an advisory group called Kids Club. And it started the year before I actually became a principal. The school, Post and Kill Elementary School, where I was a principal, they had, they had brought this to the principal and said, we'd like to try this advisory group thing, which means that each teacher teacher and staff member had a group of students between kindergarten and fifth grade, and they followed them up from year to year, and they met every other week for about 20 minutes. It was a fabulous thing. When I took over as a principal, I had my own kids club group. There were places where you just naturally fit in social emotional learning. We might talk about, you know, for a while, we had to talk about the Dignity for All Students Act, our, our, bullying, our anti-bullying legislation. So you could bring in that kind of curriculum. Other times, the social-emotional learning piece was actually doing student surveys and asking them what they wanted to see as an improvement goes in their school. So that mere, sometimes merely having the conversation and getting a child to understand that they have a voice is something that adds to social-emotional learning. You know, many times we use, like when we have students that are 
experiencing issues because, you know, friendship issues and, and they have peer issues. We use things like, you know, social stories where we would write a social story with a student and we would be able to sort of write through and act through and talk through the problem, you know, on paper that they may have had with a peer. There are, there are just so many, and you know this already, but there are countless ways that you can incorporate social emotional learning into your everyday life, even when it's academics, even when it's, you know, when a student is even like being proactive to making sure that we're doing things like maybe mindfulness or some sort of breathing before we get into a stressful learning environment. In our school, you know, I've always done things like when I taught, it was always take the desks out and let's put tables in so we can talk about cooperative learning. There are lots of times, there's this great research out of the UK by a guy named Rob Coe, and he looked at cooperative learning in schools. And what he found is that about 70% 70 of the time that our kids are in a classroom, they're in a cooperative group. But 80% of that time that they're in that cooperative group, they're doing individual work. So we're really good at cooperative seating. We're not as good at cooperative learning. So even looking at those things that are huge when it comes to academic learning are also a social emotional learning aspect. Are we teaching students how to cooperatively work with each other, challenge each other's thinking, that kind of stuff. So all of those ways naturally fit in. So it's hard because your question really leads to, is there like a 50-50 split? I don't think there's always a 50-50 split. I think that when we start looking at those teaching strategies, when we look at those things that we do in school, there's almost a natural social-emotional learning element to the academic side of the way we're doing things. Does that make sense when I say it that way? It does, and, and it really matches with some of the work that we've taken on and, and how we think about learning is social. It, it really yeah. is, and that has been shown in research. And so I think that that really tracks for us. But I'm also curious about this theme that continues to emerge and what you're saying around student voice. And particularly recently, there was a you had a guest blog written on why the 20th anniversary of Columbine should be about mm. listening to students. I'm curious, what are the themes that you're you're trying to bring out in your blog? What do you see as the purpose of that blog, and how are you choosing content to to move conversations forward? That's an interesting question because it's it's evolved over the years. You know, when I first got hired by Edweek to start writing the blog, I was a principal. It was 2011. And it was primarily to talk. I mean, I was hired to write about social emotional learning issues. I was an elementary principal, elementary background, and they wanted me to sort of focus on that. So that was a really early focus. In New York State, where I live and where I was a teacher and a principal, we went through this experience where we started to see major budget cuts to our school budgets. We saw low enrollment. People were moving out of New York State because of high taxes or having less children. And then at the same time, the governor and the commissioner of education at the time had a lot of negative rhetoric around education, around public education. So we felt like we were being bashed and we saw things like high stakes testing come along where it was tied to teacher evaluation. And then we saw that principals were supposed to do these formal teacher observations and yet we had to tie them to point scales. That's where I actually started to speak out. So I went from the social emotional learning aspect, but that was still very much a part of what I, the reasoning and why I was speaking out. 
because I saw that school was becoming this incredibly stressful place for students. So I was one of eight principals that wrote a letter against the state education department saying that testing should never be tied to teacher evaluation. I wrote blogs about the fact that just putting point scales to a to a formal teacher observation was just was completely silly and devastating to the principal teacher relationship. There was a lot of the social emotional level that was there because what I saw when you're sitting down giving a special ed student a state test and they've got double time. So they've got three hours to be able to take it and they turn around and look at you. And I remember when a student, his name was Nick, he turned around and looked at me and said, Dr. DeWitt, I can't read the first sentence. And I thought you can give this guy all day long to take this test, but he can't read the first sentence. And we had to move his lunch because it couldn't be impacted. That stuff made me very angry. I actually wrote a blog called, Don't Worry About Those Test Scores. And it was just, there was an anger because I felt like there were kids that were being made to feel like they weren't good enough. And it was based on number and it was based on a test. At that time, I think that who was invited in to write for my blog changed a bit because people felt like, okay, this is a space where I can be very open and honest. This is a space where I can write about controversial issues. So when I started to talk about LGBT issues, that brought in a certain audience. When I talked about testing, that brought in a certain audience. And then the guest bloggers that started to approach me, some of them were, you know, they were principals or they were teachers that said, I'd really like to try to write a guest blog about this because it was something academic. Other times it was, I'd like to write about this because this is what our school is doing. And then strangely enough, what started to happen is those people that I always read their books when I was doing my leadership degree, they started to contact me to ask me if they could write guest blogs because they felt that, you know, this was when blogging was fairly new. They felt like blogging was, oh, this is like, these are people that wrote for peer reviewed journals, right? And they write books and they started to say, oh, this blog is something that I can write today and he can post for me in a couple of days and it gives you this instant feedback. And that's what I really always loved. And it wasn't always easy because the feedback wasn't great. But what I loved is that we could write blogs and you get this instant connection with people, especially with social media. You know, I was starting to tweet things out and all that stuff. So what I found is that what I like now, eight years later, is the same thing I liked seven years ago. When somebody approaches me with an idea and they say, I would like to write about this. And I think, hey, this is something that I can learn from at the same time I post and maybe get a new voice out there. Like sometimes it's based on somebody sends me a negative comment because they're, they don't like the blog that I wrote. And I ask them to write a blog in response. Other times, it's somebody that I've admired for a really long time, and they connect with me and say, hey, Peter, can I write for your blog? I love that. Other times, it's people who just randomly connect with me and say, I have this idea. I'd really like to blog about it. What do you think? And if I think it's good for readers, if I think it's good for a learning experience, I love posting those because I I think part of my job as a blogger, especially with somebody who might have consider mine a popular blog... I think my job is to pay it forward and give other people a voice at the same time. So, Peter, speaking of of your blog and, you know, Andrea and I read several of your of your posts. 
And one that um, really stood out to me was about stress and anxiety. And, and it's a topic that's come up in this conversation several times, especially around kids and around trauma and, and the, the lives that many children have, uh, which makes it very difficult for them to come to school and learn when they are having so much stress and anxiety. But you wrote about your own stress and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you just told us a story about, you know, as a, as a teacher, as an educator, you had experiences that just made you, you know, so frustrated and angry, you know, when it seemed like systems were set up to force kids to fail. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've learned in our work here that that's, it's a really common experience that, that teachers, other educators have uh, a lot of anxiety. In fact, you, you may know that in addition to our second step program, we have a program called Mind Yeti, which is a mindfulness program for kids and adults. And when we were first piloting that program, you know, we were thinking very much about the kids and the benefits for the kids at the mindfulness sessions. And what we found <laughs> from the teachers was that they were experiencing as much benefit as the kids were to have those few moments of quiet and breathing and, uh, you know, a break in the day. And so I know that you have a lot of thoughts about anxiety and burnout for adults and mindfulness. I'm wondering if you could speak about those. When I was younger, I experienced some trauma. It was never really recognized back then because those were things that we didn't talk about. And over the years, I've always sort of taken time to figure that kind of stuff out. I was a long distance runner, so I used to sort of be very much in my head. And that can be both good or bad. So we've always done mindfulness as like when I was a school principal, it was something that I brought in probably two years into uh, my leadership role because I felt like it was a really important thing for students to be able to, because I saw these students who were dealing with these issues. So I felt like, you know what, it's very important for us to teach students how to sort of step back and breathe And the funny thing is, I wasn't doing that enough. And so over the years, I would burn myself out. I would work really hard. I would get sick. I would get better. And then, of course, I'd come down with, you know, bronchitis or something like that. And then I'd come back and I would run myself into the ground again. As an author and consultant, I'm on the road about 47 weeks a year. And there are literally some weeks that I'm flying, you know, I'm presenting one day, flying at night, presenting, flying. So all of this work, I was proud to be able to do it. But what I didn't realize at the same time is that I was absolutely burning myself out. So I would get up in the morning. I would uh, get ready for the day. I would present all day. And there's this enormous pressure, right? As a school principal, if I had a bad day, I could go in the next day and just make things better. There's that emotional bank account that Stephen Covey talks about. Sometimes we make deposits, other times we make withdrawals. I knew as a school principal, if I made a withdrawal, the next day I could make a deposit. As a as a consultant and author, you don't have that luxury, especially if you're working somewhere for one day and they don't, they might have read your they may have read your stuff, but they don't know you. And if you're not good, well, that can be tweeted out. And that pressure can be very overwhelming for those of us who are who are doing this. So what I found is that I was waking up in the morning, I was sort of stressed out already. I was having my coffee, I was working all day, and then I would go and work out, and then I would have a few glasses of red wine. Sleep, not very well, wake up the next morning, do it again. And I was waking up at like 2.30 in the morning. And last June, I had 15 engagements in the month of June. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but if you Think of the number of days during a week, a work week, and you think about 15, that's three weeks right there, right? Plus travel time, 
plus away from home time. And I had 27 different presentations in seven different states over that month. And I remember at the end of June, I was completely burned out thinking, I don't know if I want to do this ever again. And I had practiced meditation, but I never felt like I was doing it right. And this one night, I downloaded an app. I started to listen. And I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. I did seven days in a row and I felt like, okay, this is good. And then it got to that paid part and it was like, it's $60 for the year. I'm like, I am not paying $60. And then I thought, you know what, Peter, that's three bottles of wine and you would easily go through $60 there. So I downloaded the app and I paid, did the paid version. I have done it for a year straight. I do meditation every morning and every night. Typically, it's 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes at night. It has completely changed the way that I approach my day. So meditation really helps me come back to center. And one of the things that I found is that it has ultimately had a huge impact on how I approach my day. I rarely drink anymore. I work out. I do meditation twice a day. And when I'm approaching my workshops, I feel like I am a much better listener. It's not about, I need to get through this content. It's about, I need to listen to what these people are saying and figure out where my content fits in to what they're saying. So yeah, I've my stress level has been way down. I feel like I'm in a much better sort of mindful place. And honestly, I actually just finished a new book that will come out next year or so. Yeah. So like, I know it's, I know it's not for everyone, so I don't want to come off preachy, but I know that mindfulness for me has really been uh, my saving grace over the past year. You know, Peter, our podcast is called Grow Kinder. And while kindness isn't necessarily the first thing that comes to mind when people think of SEL, but we really believe wholeheartedly that social emotional learning and teaching skills can help people grow kinder, kids and adults. And so I'd love your perspective on how you think kindness is important for educators and, and kids and really just for our world. Wow, that's a, that's a big question. I've always been a big fan of servant leadership. So it's when I was a principal, it was, how can I serve you? How can I help you? I remember I used to give a tour to new kids that were going to be coming to the school and I would do it with their parents and I would bring them around the school and then we'd end in my office. And I had a lot of parents who would look at their child and say, you know, I never want you to come here. And I was, I always said, please don't say that. I see kids for good reasons more than I see them for bad ones. You know, the kindness piece, as we know, is not weakness. I actually think it's quite a strength to be kind. I feel like when we as adults or can even teach you know, students as well, that when somebody comes to talk to me, I want them to be better after they leave. I have met people sort of in my position where they maybe they think their status a little bit higher than everybody else. I think it's important for us, all of us, to lower our status and raise the status of the people that are around us. You know, for me, it's always been, I am not less of a person because of the fact that I'm going to be kind to everybody that I meet, uh, regardless of their position, regardless of their, of their status. I've seen people treated unfairly because they weren't called doctor or they, they didn't have enough money or something like that. I just, I've seen that within my own family, people treated that way. That's not a place that I like to be in. And I think from a social emotional learning standpoint, to me, it's all about trying to be empathetic, to understand 
where the other person is coming from before you react too harshly. And, you know, there are lots of statements out there about you've never walked a mile in their shoes or you don't know. Not all, all things are sort of visible for us that people are going through. And I think it's sort of having that mentality to understand that sometimes we have to be empathetic, even when it's somebody that might come off resistant or grumpy or whatever. I think it's important to understand where they're coming from before we react too harshly to them. And I think that that's what social emotional learning really teaches us. It's about understanding the dynamics of the different people who are around us and getting an understanding of their background and then sort of coming together from that. And I think kindness is definitely a, a very important part of that. I don't think you should ever be apologetic about being kind because it's it's something that people will remember of you after they leave you. And I think that that's, uh, for me, I think that's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, kindness is unfortunately saddled with these ideas of weakness or lack of mm -hmm. assertiveness. And I think aspects of social emotional learning address that very well. You talk mm -hmm. about you don't have to be aggressive, you can be assertive. And that, that being kind doesn't mean, for instance, being a martyr right, <laughs> about right. things. And, and you can still stand your ground and, and have respectful conversation and disagreement. You know, when I think about what your work has been about and, and also our work at Committee for Children in sort of trying to make positive impact on the lives of young people, we naturally start to think about who did that for us. And I'd love to hear if there are adults or teachers or, you know, it, one in particular that you remember that had a real positive impact on you when you were growing up. Not to sound silly. I mean, there were, there were plenty of teachers that I had that um, I remember very fondly. I had a very good coach when I was on my third attempt at community college who said, you know, DeWitt, you're not going to be a professional runner. I want you to go into the Learning Assistance Center. And I, I walked in that semester with a 1.7 and walked out with a 3.86. But I would say that um, in my life, the most profound people who have had an impact on me are my family. I've been very, you know, I lost my dad when I was 11 and he had cancer for about three years before he had passed away. So there a lot of my memories have to deal with the hospital and those kind of things. My mom raised five of us after he had passed on. And, uh, you know, my siblings were very different. And yet we're also very close and I am nothing without them. They are in my corner nonstop. They are my biggest supporters. You know, I'm the youngest of five and I'm the first in my family to go to college. And they've been there for every single part of it. They've been there cheering me on. And my mom has certainly been, you know, I always used to laugh when I was a long distance runner, there were times that I would win races. And then other times I had these horrible races where like, I don't know if I didn't have the right sugar level or what, but I just like was ready to collapse and I was in the last place. She was still out there screaming my name and, you know, cheering me on. I was a cross country skier and we used to race in the trails. So there was honestly like a hundred yards that she could see of me skiing out of a, a 3.1 mile race. And she was always there as I was skiing by. So, you know, my family have been very, very fortunate. And I would say that they were the biggest contributors. And then, you know, over the past 18 years, it's been my partner. He has been my biggest confidant, my best friend, and one of the best things that ever happened to me. So I am profoundly lucky to even though going through tough circumstances growing up and those kind of things, I am profoundly fortunate to have the family that I had, 
but also in this life that I have now, in this professional life, also being able to come home and be home and, and having a great partner has been something that I am tremendously grateful for. How lovely. What great riches, right? Yeah. I would like to ask you, Peter, we ask all of our guests a particular question when we talk to them, which is to identify or think about one act of kindness that you witnessed or took part in in the past week. I've seen my partner go across the street, you know, to help my one of our other neighbors who's redoing his bathroom. I think that in our neighborhood over the past few days that I've been home and I'm not home that often, I've seen a lot of those helping hand kind of things that seem very simple, but it's kind of nice to reach out your hand and just say, can I help you with something? And I've seen a lot of instances of that. I am a big fan of, I, you know, I like doing things like just surprising somebody and buying them lunch and having them not know that I bought them lunch and not know even who I am. It's just that they happen to be sitting at the next table over from me. And I think that when we can do those kind of things, those are um, contribute more positivity to a world that seems to focus on a lot of negativity. Yeah. And there's a lot coming out around, you know, we talked about gratitude earlier, but also doing for others that it really promotes your own happiness and it yeah. can be fulfilling in so many ways. Thank you so much for connecting with us today. And if our listeners wanted to know more about you, where can they go? They can just search. I have a website, petermdewitt.com. I'm on Twitter under the same name. So there are plenty of spaces. I write the Finding Common Ground blog for Education Week, and all of my books can be found on Corwin Press's website. Peter, it was such a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. And we appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Peter DeWitt, blogger for Finding Common Ground at Education Week. You can find more episodes at growkinderpodcast.org and make sure to rate and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Stitcher.